Today is the day we've all been waiting for. Well, maybe you haven't. I have. Romans chapter 14. And I can see Jimmy's all excited about it because he has changed his whole procedure today. Today he's brought me a Christian cup to put my water in. <laughs> for those of you over here that can't see it, there it is. See that thing there? That's a fish. That's right. Well, you're good. That's it. That's a fish. <laughs> Well, today we're going to start Romans chapter 14, the last two chapters in this great book. I hope by now, and you know my style of teaching or preaching uh, the Bible, is to uh, uh, have you uh, understand uh, each book by outline. I think that uh, it's absolutely crucial for you to learn the Bible. Uh, the first thing you have to begin to do is to understand how each book breaks itself down. Uh, obviously, in the long run, you find that the whole Bible has its natural breakdown. You need to learn that. And then you need to learn each individual book, how it breaks down. And then uh, each chapter breaks down. And uh, you'll notice in, when I teach you the Bible, I try to always put those things uh, there because they are the fundamentally, they are the, the, the things you have to get down. But um, we talked about how the book of Romans is, is vital to you and to me as New Testament Christians. You hear me talk a lot about the three aspects that you have to have to really be effective in ministry. You have to have perspective. What is perspective? Perspective is how you view things. Then you've got to have purpose. What is purpose? Purpose is why do you do the things that you do? And then you have to have passion. What is passion? Passion is the drive that helps you accomplish what God wants you to do, the purpose, and keeps you focused on uh, the seeing things as they really are. The devil's whole trick for you and for me is to get us off focus. And, um, you know, uh, you see it in every sports uh, challenge that you, you go up. Right now we're in the middle of the basketball stuff, you know, heading into the Final Four. You know, and, and a lot of really good teams have been upset and uh, beaten by teams that nobody thought would really beat them. I think it's probably really, well, I know it is, it's really, really hard to keep up that level of playing that you have to do to keep winning. It's really tough. And we all know that, uh, that every team out there that uh, was in maybe first or second or third place are probably better teams than maybe the teams that beat them on any given night. But the real issue becomes the problem that you just can't stay at the top of your game all the time. It only takes one bad night to lose your focus. And um, you know what? And you've lost the ball game. And the devil tried to do the same thing to us. I saw, I heard a message one time that Dr. Ruckman uh, preached, and he drew when he preached it, and it was called the Game of Life. And the picture that he drew was a, was a, a baseball stadium, and uh, a pitcher up the bat, and the people in the background, you know, and the devil was, devil was doing the pitching. And uh, he laid the whole thing out, how that uh, life has rules just like, uh, like sports does. And, if, you know, if you're playing basketball, you've got a referee. If you're playing softball or baseball, you've got an umpire. And just about any sport you're in, you have somebody who says what's right and what's wrong. In other words, you have a final authority. And he went on and laid this thing out and talked about the fact that it doesn't really matter in a basketball game if you like the call of the ref or not. That ref is the final authority for that game. It doesn't matter if you agree with the umpire when he called you out when you thought it should have been a ball when it was really a strike. He's the final authority. And he laid out the concept that in the game of life, it's the exact same way. The game of life has a final authority. 
And uh, the devil's job is to try to keep you and I off focus. He wants to throw you a curveball. He wants to throw you a fastball. He wants to get your eye off the ball and look at something else so you miss when you swing. And that's basically uh, perspective is an incredible thing that we have to have. And the book of Romans is our book on perspective. I told you when we started this that, you know, it was basically like our Constitution of the United States of America. If you've ever tried to read the Constitution, you'll realize that it's very hard to read. But it was, without a doubt, is the single most important doctrine along with the Declaration of Independence. But our Constitution is probably the single greatest document on which rests everything that we believe as a country. And, uh, you know, for you and for me and Christianity, the Book of Romans is the same thing. It is the Constitution of Christianity. It is the absolutely most vital book that you as a New Testament Christian. In fact, I'll go so far to say this, and I believe this to be absolutely true. I don't think you'll ever effectively understand what God wants you to do or understand uh, your life as a Christian until you basically understand the book of Romans. And arguably, the book of Romans to me is probably the hardest book in the Bible. It probably took me four or five years to really get it down. It's one of those books because of the way it's written. It's like reading the Constitution, like reading a legal document. And in essence, that's exactly what it is. It's God's legal binding document. His legal binding agreement with the church and you and me as Christians. I've told you many, many times, and the price of learning is obviously repetition by now. The placement of Acts is no, placement of Romans is no accident. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which basically form the, the historical foundation for the church. Then you have the book of Acts, which really brings you through and, and gives birth to the church. But at this point, at the book of Acts, we still don't know what the church is to believe. We see a lot of people doing a lot of things in the book of Acts, but we really don't know what's changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Ah, that's why Romans is the next book. Romans is the legal agreement between me and you and God, our church and God, of what really now has transpired and changed and what God expects you and me to do as far as our perspective now, our purpose now, and even our passion. And that's why chapter by chapter, and you should all have this in your Bible now, and, you know, if you're somebody new that's just been coming for a couple of weeks, you know, um, you know basically, I'll, uh, in review, I'll go through it again because I think a context is always important. We saw in chapter 1 where God begins to tell us uh, in, in Paul's writings how God now has looked at the Gentiles. Up to this point, the Gentiles were dealt with by God by their conscience. So in chapter 1, he begins to show that, so we get an understanding of that. In chapter 2, then he moves to the aspect that God dealt with the Gentiles through their conscience, but he dealt with the nation of Israel through the law. And he contrasts the two. And you get a better understanding that God dealt with the Gentiles one way, and then God dealt with the nation of Israel another way. Then we go into chapter 3 and 4. And in chapter 3 and 4, we find out that in those particular chapters that neither the Gentile following his conscience, nor the Jew following the law, is going to work for God anymore. Why? Because God has changed the way things now work. We went from the Old Testament now into the New Testament, and he basically says in chapter 1, well, the Gentiles did it this way, the Jews did it this way, and in chapter 3 and 4 he says, but neither way is going to work because God has a new plan for both the Jew and the Gentile. And we know that new plan is Christ's death on the cross. Little Logan had it right on the money. Uh, little Logan had it right down. He had a solid piece of theology. 
And that solid piece of theology was in the Old Testament, they couldn't go to heaven because they didn't, the blood was not shed. So they had to go to Abraham's bosom. And, uh, and once Christ died, then he opened up the gates and he took them to heaven because everything changed. And this is what Romans is telling you. So you come to chapter 5 through chapter 8, and you'll find these are the great doctrinal chapters. These are the chapters that chapter by chapter tell you and me what now has changed. It gives me my perspective of my salvation, my, my glorified body, uh, how I relate to the law now in the New Testament. Every aspect of our New Testament Christian walk in, in relationship with Christ is now laid out based on the fact that the, since the cross of Calvary, the world has changed. And his death on the cross impacted planet Earth never to be the same again. Each chapter deals with it and lays it out in that particular uh, for you and for me. Then we remember chapter 9, 10, and 11? Those were the great prophetic chapters, weren't they? And that's where God now shows us that, that he's not done with the nation of Israel. And he goes through chapter 9 and shows what happened to Israel. Chapter 10, how the Gentiles have now come in. But chapter 11 then says that God's going to bring the Jew back to that place. Chapter 12, oh, what a great chapter chapter 12 was. Remember chapter 12? It showed us our relationship to the unsaved world. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body. What? A living sacrifice. And we talked about that. We just finished chapter 13. Chapter 13 dealt with the fact that our relationship to our government, authority over us, higher powers that be. And we went through that and, and laid it all out, and we understand now what the government is, why God had that as one of the three institutions that he put into, the, into, into man on planet Earth. So we know that now. Finally, we come to chapter 14 and 15. And here he begins to show our relationship to other Christians on an individual basis. Now, chapter 14 and 15 deals with how, basically, and all this is going to be an introduction today. I have to lay a very solid conceptual foundation so that when we get into chapter 14 and 15 that you really can grasp some of these principles. So you need to get a, an understanding of it. Uh, but chapter 14 and 15 deals with how stronger Christians, more mature Christians, should view younger Christians, how they should understand them, how they should, we should relate to them, and how we should help them. You know, in dealing with people, and we're going to come here once we finish Institute, and I, I just can't wait to get into this part of it because most of the church, uh, for the most part, is really ready for this. Once we finish our, our third year of, of Institute and we'll be ready for our fourth year, uh, we've come through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. I've laid all of the Bible things out. Now, through that process, I want to bring you to the point where uh, we take a group of people who are ready for this and we, we go into biblical counseling, how to take the Bible and Bible principles and apply them first to your own life and then to the other people that you may talk with and work with. Most of you don't know this yet. Some of you do. But most of you have not come to the reality that the fact is that you are a missionary. And the mission field that you have is simply where you work, your neighborhood, or the people that you're associated with. And, and, you, and you're going to find that you deal with people all day long who have issues and problems in their life who are looking for answers. And God wants you to have the answer. We talked about yesterday for a little bit with the men perspective. And I, and, and, and I told them, I said, you know what? Probably your perspective 
of what I do up here is different than my perspective. If I would ask you, if I would ask you, what is your perspective on me getting up here and teaching the Bible? You would probably say, well, so I could learn the Bible. And that would be true. But you see, my perspective doesn't stop there. My perspective is I stand up here to teach the Bible, not only so you can learn the Bible, but so then you can teach somebody else the Bible. See the difference in our perspective? Mine isn't as limited yours. Yours says, well, I'm, I'm here. My perspective is to learn the Bible. That's a great thing. But I want to take it one step further than that. If you're saved here today, and, you say, and I don't care what level you're on, if you're saved here today, the bottom line is this. In time, God wants to use you to touch somebody else's life. It's just that simple. And you need to understand that part of your natural spiritual growth is getting to that place. Now, we all have circumstances in our lives, but let me just say this to you. The only thing that will ever keep you from getting to that point in your life, and I don't doubt that everybody wants to get there. I, I don't think we probably have anybody in our church that said, nah, you know what, I just want to be a bum. I, I don't necessarily think that. But I do know this. I do know that the only thing that will ever stop you from getting to that point in your life will be you. It won't be any circumstance in life. It won't be anything that happens. It'll be you. Your whole life is based on you making choices that will help you or will not help you in your own spiritual growth. And you have to be honest with yourself and, and realize. But I, I, I'm excited about taking a host of people, uh, even on some of the first, second, and level people, because I see within you, I, this this prayer group type thing has been the most eye-opening thing for me that I have ever done in, in all the years of my ministry. It's kind of given me a bird's eye view, an inside look, and I can actually just after one round, I can actually see uh, the development in, in people and, and their attitudes about things. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the thing that I look for because I don't really care. Honestly, I don't really care what you don't know about the Bible or what you do know. I can teach you all that. What I've never found the ability to be able to do is to teach somebody to have the right attitude about learning. That has to come between you and God. That has to come because you are never satisfied with who you are. That has to come because you always want to be better tomorrow than you were today. You give me that kind of person, and I will build you into everything God ever wants you to be. But it starts with you, and it starts with me. It starts with our desire. And you're going to find that when we begin to work with this, and you begin to learn some things, you're going to find that all of my dealing with people, all of my counseling, whatever I do, whatever, whatever I'm doing, it's all built around two sections, and in each section, three basic fundamental concepts. And everything I do, everything you're going to do, is going to be built around these two sections with these basically three different concepts. And, uh, you know, it sounds so simple, uh, but, it, but, it, but it really is. You know, I found over the years that most of the problems we have, most of the problems, we, and I know we can get into some really complicated things in our lives, but I found this to be generally true, especially with you, because we don't have any axe murderers here or anything like that, uh, nothing I know of. But the bottom line is this, most of you can get, your problems could be solved very quickly. It, 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 it's not going to take 10 years to fix what's wrong with you. 
And uh, I found that most problems that people have can be dealt with very quickly. I, I had to laugh last Sunday, Sunday, Sunday night down at the City Union Mission. And uh, Steve Brackeen preached. And, uh, you know, and the guy got up afterwards, the guy that runs the place, and he basically, uh, you know, and I had never even thought this way. I mean, I, I, it, he'd come to the place where he was basically getting on the guys because evidently after you guys go down and preach, uh, some of those guys down there obviously don't want us to come back. You know why? Because you preach the truth. And he stood up and said, you know what? I don't care what you're like. They're preaching the truth, and I agree with them. And I thought to myself, let me... Now, you guys are really doing a good job down there, and I know that all of you are learning and growing, and the bottom line is, and I'm pleased as punch, and I love everything. We've got a bunch of new people going in and do, doing, uh, uh, doing the, the devotion this time, and, then, and, then the guy, and I've seen great strides in your preaching ability, and I'm happy. But let me tell you something. None of you guys have been, I thought you guys have been absolutely some of the nicest, kindest, sweetest you know, messages you've ever preached in your life. God help them if I ever got up there and preached to them. But let me give you an example to show you how, how simple it is. The last time I preached at the mission was 20, I tried to think today, I think it was 20 years ago. And I preached down there, and I preached a message down there. And this shows you how simple it is. You see, the reason why they're upset with you preaching is because you're preaching the truth to them. And many of them have issues in their life. I mean, hello, you're in the City Union Mission, you know, I mean, I mean you know, you think they could figure it out. But I preached down there the last time I preached. And, you know, and I, and I preached John chapter 8, verse 44. I preached a simple, what I call a mission message. Year of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye shall do. He was the murderer from the beginning, and bowed not on the truth, because there's no truth in him. And I just laid it on him. And I, when I do a message like that, I work it. I work the crowd. I'll get down in their face, and I, I'm not telling you you should do this. But I'm, this is what I did. I worked the crowd. I'd say, I'd say, you know what that Bible says? It says if you're not saved today, if you're not trusting Christ as your own personal Savior, your spiritual family is the devil. Your daddy, spiritually, is the devil. And boy, you should see him. I mean, and the saved people, they were with you. But you could tell just right now who the unsaved people were. Boy, they didn't like that. Nobody likes to be told your spiritual father is the devil. Nobody likes to be told you're of your father, the devil, and you're in the devil's family if you're unsaved. Nobody wants to, to, to hear that. But I, I, I'm going to use that because I'm going to make a point. And before I can make my point, I have to show how graphic where their situation is to show them how easy the situation is. So about 20, 25 minutes, I just work them. You're of your father, the devil. The lust of your fathers, you would do. You know why you're a drunkard? You know why you do dope? Because the lust of your fathers, you would do. You know why you fornicate? You know why you do? Because the lust of your fathers, you should. I just beat him up about nine ways from Sunday. Except it was Saturday when I was preaching. Nine ways from Saturday. But I just let them have it. Let them have it. And by the time our 20, 30 minutes is done, they're just, I mean, smoke's coming out their ears. They're absolutely livid with me because I have made the point now over and over and over again, ye are of your father, the devil. And then I come to my cutoff point. Now, I'm going to show you how simple it is. I said, you don't like that, do you? Now, look at it. I know now who's mad. See, one of the, guy, one of the things you guys need to learn to do in time, and I know you're still young, but you need to learn to make eye contact with who you And even when they don't like you, especially the ones that don't like you. 
I mean, they can beat you up later in the parking lot, but they can't do anything in that crowd. So you got your advantage. And I look at them. I said, you don't like that, do you? And I'm looking at the ones who are scheming. And I said, you don't like that, do you? You don't like the fact that you're of your father, the devil. You don't like the fact that the last 20, 30 minutes I told you that your spiritual father is the devil and your spiritual family is the devil. You don't like that, do you? And boy, I mean, they, they're, now they're agreeing. No, I don't like that. I don't like that. You're right. I don't like that. And I say, you know what? Now here comes the turning point. Here shows you how simple it is. I said, you know what? I didn't like it either. Now, one day a long time ago, somebody told me the same thing I just told you. You know what I did? I got just mad like you did. I smoked. I steamed. I cussed on the inside. But at the end of the message, you know what I did? I was so mad, I changed families. Now, you mad today because your spiritual name is devil? You mad today because of the fact that you're of your father the devil? Easy solution. Just change families. See how simple that is? You don't have to pay anything. You don't have to buy anything. You don't have to go anywhere. If you're absolutely just livid because of the fact that your spiritual name is devil, change families. Now that is easy, isn't it? But none of them did it. My point is simply this. Most problems we have could be solved just that quickly. Problem is not Hey, I got news for you, and I'm not a great Bible teacher, nor I know everything about the Bible, but I can tell you this with all the authority. I can basically solve every problem anybody's got in this room today if you want to. I mean, because you know what? Because it's not that hard. The problem is we don't want to. We try to make the burden on God like it's some hard thing I got to do. The guy said, well, I don't want to get saved because I can't live it. I got news for you, pal. You can't live it after you get saved. That's a dumb excuse. Somebody says, well, I can't get saved. Do I stop some things in my life? You don't have the power to stop things in your life till you get saved. That's a dumb excuse. You know, I understand that some people take that position because they don't, they don't understand, and that's fine. Thank you, that's fine. But you take any Christian, male or female, any Christian fundamentally... Whatever problem they have, whatever issue they have, whatever takes place, whatever they got to work through down through there, uh, it basically falls down into two sections, and each section have three basic fundamentals that they need to get down in their life. I'll tell you another example. How about Cain and Abel? Remember that story back in Genesis chapter 4? Remember when Abel did the best he could? He brought his, he brought his cantaloupes and his watermelons and his, his, uh, his uh, potatoes and his, his, all of his vegetables in before the Lord. And, uh, and Abel just went out and killed a sheep and brought it in. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that God had respect under, under Abel's and no respect under Cain. And then Cain got an attitude about it. Like some of you do sometimes. Like I do sometimes. Cain got an attitude. Because God didn't accept what he brought, and he worked hard for it. That was after the fall. You just didn't go around and pick the fruit up on top of the ground like before the fall. He had to dig it. He had to fertilize it. He had to hoe it. He had to keep the weeds out. And he did all of that work, and he brought it to God, and God said, no way. And he got an attitude. What did God say? God said, what are you mad about, Cain? If you go get the right sacrifice, I'll accept it. But he didn't. Life's just that simple. I don't care what problem you've got today, you can begin to solve it in 15 seconds or less. And the foundation of it is based on these three things, or these six things in each section. 
Now, believe it or not, every issue you have, personally or with somebody else or whoever or whatever, can be solved by you getting these three things in your life. And, the, and it's simple. You're, like, you're turning your page and getting out your pen like I'm going to say, okay, the first thing is call lightning down from heaven. These are so stupidly basic, you probably don't even want to write them down. You know what the first one is for you and for me? I'm going to tell you. It's just simply this. Start seeing God for who he is. That is the fundamentally the biggest problem that everybody, whether it's marital problems, personal problems, whatever the case, your number one foundation problem simply is this. You cannot see God for who he is. You think God's out to get you. You think God's out to hurt you. There's no understanding of why God even saved you. You can't put two and two together because you realize that God saved you from hell so he could kill you. Is that what he did? Well, God, you know, God's going to give me cancer because I got problems with cigarettes or I got problems with this. Oh, I got you. He saved you from hell to give you cancer. You got people live their lives like that. They live their whole lives in fear like God. Some, I look at God and I see a loving father standing up there that gave me Jesus Christ. When they see God, they see a big foot. That's not God. You see God for who he is. When you understand who God is in your life, then you understand who Christ is and his function in your life. And when you understand that, you, then you grasp the Holy Spirit of God and you find out what his function is. John chapter 14 and 16. Two of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible on the Holy Spirit of God. John chapter 16 in particular tells you seven things the Holy Spirit of God does for you. And I'm telling you, the number one problem we have is we don't see God for who he is. Our perspective of God is wrong. And I'll tell you the second problem you have. You don't see yourself after you're saved as God sees you. Many of you were brought up in bad home situations. Many of you were told all your life you're stupid, you're ugly, you're dumb, you'll never make anything else in life. Many of you were told by bad parents that, uh, and and maybe many of you never heard the word, I love you, all the time you were growing up. Many of you came through life and you never had a warm, fuzzy home relationship where the Bible was taught. You grew up pretty much fending for yourself. And uh, uh, maybe uh, your dad all his life told you how stupid you were. Maybe your mother told you how she was disappointed in you. Maybe you heard all your life that you never were going to amount to anything in life. And of course, after what, 10, 15, 20 years of that, you're going to believe that. And you know what? That may have been true. You may have been a bum, you may have not been well in school, you may have been a rebellious child, all of those things. But that all changed the day you got saved because the Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, old things are passed away, all things become new. Now you got to see yourself not as your mom and dad saw you, not as your mom and dad had you look at yourself. Now we got to change your thinking process and you've got to see yourself from God's standpoint. Before you were saved, God looked at you as a sinner. After you get saved, God doesn't look at you as a sinner anymore. Now he looks at you as his son. There is a world of difference between the two. Before you were saved, he dealt with your sin one way. After you're saved, now he deals with your sin another way. And it isn't the same. 
It forms your whole concept of who you are. That's why one of the greatest studies that I have people come through that, that I taught you a while back, and now many of you are teaching it, is basically, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest single piece of teaching we ever put out for young Christians is the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. Because your second problem is you don't see who you are. And I'll tell you the third problem. We don't see other Christians as God sees them. We look at them the way we look at everything else, and that's usually wrong. We forget that when we were young Christians, we've been saved 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we forget how when we struggled when we first got saved. Now self-righteousness has set in, and we think we're better than everybody else. We forget our own battles and our own issues. Now we have young Christians come in and they have the same issues that we had, but we don't have any tolerance for them. We don't have any patience for them. There's no question in my mind that the key to successful ministry is one word in the Bible, and that is the word unity. What the Bible has the unique ability to do through the Holy Spirit of God is take every Christian, no matter where he's at or where she's at on whatever level, from the very new people saved to the people around 20 years, and because of the blood of Christ, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God, form it all into one solidarity union called the body of Christ. That is the key. That is the key. That is the key. Nikki, the other night, Halliburton, I think she's in the nursery today. I tell you, she's, she's last two Thursday nights, she's ended the Bible study with two spectacular questions to just, to just have really set me up. And one of them just really, I had never even seen before. And it wasn't this Thursday night, it was last Thursday night. And she asked a question about out of Nehemiah there, chapter 4, I think it was verse 17 or 27 someplace there, where they're building the wall. And she wanted to know why the Bible says that they're building the wall with one hand and then they have a weapon in the other hand. And I'll be honest, I've never saw that before. I've been through Nehemiah a hundred times. And I just never caught that. And I and I when I when she said that, I'm kind of swallowing and trying to, I mean, I'm trying to formulate an answer to give everybody, but at the same time, I'm trying to figure this thing out on my own, and I'm looking at this thing, and it just knocked me off my socks. Not off my socks, knocked me out of my socks. <laughs> And I, in, a, in a blitz second, I grabbed the concept. In, in Ezra, they're building the temple. Your picture of your body. But in Nehemiah, they're building a church. Picture of the wall with all the structures inside. And the wall protected the, the people inside. And the Bible says that when they're building the wall, they're working with one hand and holding the weapon in the other hand. Now, we know the weapon is a sword. And we know the sword is a picture of the Word of God. But how in the world do you build anything with one hand? And the key was that you got one person over here holding the sword in this hand, working with this one, and then you got another person over here holding the sword in this hand, working with this one, and the two working together in a concentrated, coordinated effort to get the job done with one hand each, but other hand on the Bible. That's unity. That's what this church ought to be doing. It is doing. That's exactly what the success of any church is going to be. One body, one spirit, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one mind. And they're all different concepts for you and me to study in the Bible to understand what's going on. You know when I tell young couples when they get married or when they're going to get married? And I want you to pray for me this week. I forgot to say this in my list. I've got a couple coming over this week that, that I am so burdened for and love so much. 
and I'm going to have the opportunity. They've asked me to do their wedding, and I'm going to do it, and I'm, I'm absolutely just ecstatic about getting a chance to sit down with them this week, and these are the kind of scenarios that I can find out where they're at with the Lord, and I, you pray for me uh, this week because I'm going to, it's, it's a great opportunity, and I've prayed for these kids, and, and many of you have, and many of you have, have, have worked with them and encouraged them, and, and, uh, and, and I'm going to get a shot at them this week. And I'm just praying on my knees that God gives me everything that I need to, to do, uh, we have the wisdom of Solomon to figure this thing out and to do it. So I'm excited about that. But you know what I tell people when they get married, or if they are married and they have marital problems? And many of you have come into this church, uh, you know, and you, you had marital issues. Some of you are working through them right now. And uh, it's okay. Everybody comes in with their problems. But uh, and many of you have got through those problems. And you're, you know, you're, you're some of the strongest people in this church that I would trust just about with anybody to work with. But here's what I always tell them. And you know in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, it talks about the marriage relationship. That's our favorite chapter when you're doing a wedding, you know. But at the same time, it's also you're told in there that it's not just talking about it's not just talking about the wedding aspect as far as a marriage, but it's a picture of Christ and the church. And here's what I tell people at some point in our in our dealing with them. I'd say, you know what? When you got married, the first thing I tell them is that marriage is not something that man designed, marriage is something that God's designed. And I tell them that trying to run a marriage another way than God designed for it to work will never work. And I tell them, here's why. Here's why marriages fail. First of all, people don't, un- and this is why churches fail too, by the way, because you can't separate them out. The first reason they fail is because they don't understand what marriage is. The Bible says, you know, you sit down there and you have a wedding here, and we're going to have our first wedding in the church here. You're going to have your wedding here, aren't you, huh? You got it all set up, got it booked and everything? You turn in the check, it's $10,000 to rent this place. An hour. <clears throat> and I do long weddings. <clears throat> I'm happy for you. I'm happy for you. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. And uh, you know what? It's a thing where uh, when I sit down to talk with somebody, here's what I tell them. I say, you know what? When you have a wedding, and you've all been to weddings, you have a, the bride, the bride comes down to the deal, and the guy usually comes out here, and you have all your attendants, you know, and, and uh, the, the bride and the groom stand before the pastor, and he goes through the ceremony, and then he pronounces them a husband and wife. Now, when you look at it, you see a bride and a groom, they kiss hard on the mouth, and then they turn around and they go out, and the guy usually says, I introduced you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. And at that point, uh, the two that came in, have, single, now they're married, see? And so we see two people walk in, and we see two people walk out. But that's not how God sees it. Because real marriage is not a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing. And so when God sees it, he sees the two people, husband and wife, the Bible says in the book of Ephesians, those two become one. Now, if two people, let me just ask you here, fundamentally, if two people become one, but it takes two people to make up a marriage, and these two people become one, who makes the, the other half of that marriage? And the answer is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you two become one. So you're not married, you're, you're now one. So you've got to have a partner in your marriage to make it a work because marriage is two people. And the other part of that marriage would be the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's the same way in a church. 
We probably got 160 people all together here today, somewhere around that. But you know what? If you're all saved, and I don't doubt that you are, but if you're all saved, we see 100 different 60 people. But when God sees it, he just sees one body. That's all he sees. Now, if you saw that, a couple of things would happen. If you understood that, a couple of things would happen. We wouldn't take so long to say goodbye. <laughs> you just yell at the door, buy one body and be gone. See, no, 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 not us. No, no, we are the original Walton family. Good night, Grandpa. Good night, big boy or young boy or young boy or whoever you are. That's us, you see, and I love that. But in reality, that's the way we look at it. The way God looks at it, he sees everybody here and he sees us in one body. The way we are successful in what we do is recognizing that we as a church who are going to be married to Christ, just like the husband and wife, that's why he says this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church, is because we as one body need to be married to Christ, the person of Christ. Same concept. Same concept. And, 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 and that's what most people don't understand. That's where your unity is. The devil's job is to stop unity, tear up the oneness. And this is why you see where he fundamentally starts is with all the new Bibles. You realize that any given Bible study across this city that you'll go to, probably if it's got 40 or 50 people in it, you'll probably have an NIV, an ASV, a New King James, an RSV, a Good News, maybe who else knows what, maybe a King James Bible thrown in there, and they sit around in a Bible study and somebody reads a verse and then it doesn't match up to anybody else's verse in the Bible. There's no unity in that. You see, the first thing that the devil had to do to destroy unity in the church is destroy unity in the Bible. So Bible studies are relegated to everybody sitting around with a different translation and somebody reading a verse and then said, now what do you think it means? And what do you think it means? What do you think it means? What do you think it means? And everybody's got a different version of the Bible so everybody gives a different opinion. At the end of the day, who cares what you think it means? What does it mean from God's word to you? The Bible says God's not the author of confusion. How can he not have confusion when you got 30 people reading 30 different verses and it all reads differently? That's confusion, see? But that's where he starts. It's exactly where he starts. In the world, we say, let's get on the same page. You can't do that in the modern-day Bibles because some pages don't have the same verses on them that other Bibles do because they left so many verses out. Well, I'm not here to talk about manuscript evidence today. But let's, let's begin today in reading this chapter and laying down a foundation that you understand where we're coming from. Now, I want to read chapter 14, the first four verses here. And here's what it says. We're going to tie all these three. I gave you three fundamental things that you need to have down. Then I'm going to give you three more here in a minute. And this is going to be the basis from getting into chapter 14 and 15. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eateth herbs. Let him not that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. For who art thou that judgeth another man's servant? To him, his own master, he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holding up, for God is able to make him stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. We pray you'll give us wisdom and insight into all that we have to look at today and help us lay a good, solid foundation for chapter 14 and 15, which are probably two of the greatest chapters that we need to have as believers in this church to help other Christians. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Well, you probably didn't have to see very quickly past verse 1 what the theme of this chapter is. The theme of this chapter is dealing with weak Christians, Christians who are weak in the faith. Now, 
I think that it's important to define exactly what that means before we try to get into it and uh, what it means to, when the Bible talks about a weak Christian. Now, a weak Christian can be a bad thing or a weak Christian can be a good thing. But I want you to fully understand the difference. Now, in a situation here, he's talking about a weak Christian as a good thing. You've talked about, I've taught you many, many times how that in the Bible, there's seven basically stages of spiritual growth. It starts out with the babies and winds up as the aged. It runs through the gamut just like a little baby growing up and then coming to an adulthood where they take responsibility and accountability for everything in life. And we've talked about that many, many times, and I've laid it out many, many times. The other Thursday night, somebody asked a question. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Nikki again. Uh, she asked, somebody asked a question uh, about the six things that I had given a while back that by which you can measure your spiritual growth. And I gave you all that simply because of the fact that uh, uh, when you come in as a young Christian, you're weak. Not in a bad way, but you're weak. You don't understand everything. doesn't mean that you don't want to learn everything, but there's no way that in a couple of weeks' time you can learn everything. So you have to, you have to depend on other things to help you figure it out till you get on your own feet spiritually. And... Uh, over the years of dealing with people and issues, uh, you know what? They kind of fall into a couple of different basic categories. Now, I know that everybody is different and everybody has different problems, but here's the bottom line that you're going to learn, and I'll show you this when we get into biblical counseling. People may be different. Problems may vary, uh, but human nature is always the same. Learning the patterns of human nature is the key to dealing with people, and, and we all have the same basic fundamental flaws because we're all human. And uh, most people, and I tell people this all the time, the best way to be the best biblical counselor you can be and the best way to help other people's problems with things that, you, that they struggle with is to understand how it's worked in your own personal life and your own personal struggles. In other words, you have to apply the principles to yourself first. It never works in dealing with people when you want to have two sets of rules. You've got to apply the rules to you first and then you can apply them to somebody else. Trying to do it without applying it to you, it'll, it'll never work. It'll just wind up being a self-righteous mess, and that's usually what happens. But you're going to find that by ease of understanding and, you know, and, and, and complex problems, you're going to find that uh, you know, uh, they, they basically fall into a couple of categories. Now, this first category will be based on doctrinal differences. And I know that chapter 14 is not dealing with that in any way, shape, or form, but I want you to understand the whole concept of it. So we'll talk about this for just a few moments. And you're going to find that there are weak Christians have a tendency to get into heresy and bad teachings. And the Bible talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, where it talks about that they're blown about by every wind of doctrine. What does that mean? Well, it's like a flag in a, in a, in a heavy wind. Wind in the Bible is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God, but it's also a picture of, of, uh, of, of bad doctrine. And what happens is if somebody's weak in the faith, they don't have the ability to understand what is true teachings of the Bible and what is false teachings of the Bible. We had a kid here a while back, and I really loved this kid. And I, it, was a, it, was a, it was one of those hard things for me because he was a nice kid, and I saw a lot of potential in him. But I had a couple of you guys working with him, as we do, and we all talked about this, is the fact that we could just never get the kid to settle down on what he needed to study. And his big problem was, as all young guys that are 19, 20 years old, that doesn't have a girlfriend, and, and true of girls 
19, 20 years old and don't have a boyfriend. He wanted somebody else in his life. And, uh, and you know what? And he was a nice kid. And he was a, he was a, he was a very nice kid. And I, 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 I think about him a lot. But the bottom line was is that he just, he was so weak in the faith and, so, and he'd been saved for a while. But nobody ever got into his world and tried to stabilize him to give him some foundational stuff. And because of that, he was weak. And because he was weak, he couldn't discern the real Bible and truth versus his emotion of wanting to be hooked up with a girl. And I guarantee you, you could probably write the end of this story. The devil supplied what he wanted, and it wasn't the Bible. And it got God, the devil brought a girl into his life. And the girl come to the place where it was a situation where, you know, uh, that was the end of that. This girl was in, a, uh, was in a church situation that was probably one of the most worst situations for Christian you could get into, a charismatic church. And it was a situation where it just absolutely uh, destroyed this kid. And it was a situation where, uh, you know, it, he, he did not have the strength to understand the Bible doctrine versus his emotions of wanting to be tied up with somebody else. Now, and I look at this, and maybe you can't see it this way. That's okay. This is what I get paid for looking at and seeing it this way. When I look at that, I see it, see it very clearly. Here was a kid that probably had great potential. He probably would have been done something great for the Lord. He would have had everything he wanted to do. But the bottom line, at the end of the day, he would not stabilize himself in the Word of God to make the right choices. And choices like that, you only have to make one bad one, and you're out. And he's out. Probably will never get back. I haven't talked to him for a long time, but I guarantee you probably he's up, up to his eyebrows in that stuff over there. And uh, he never had a foundation in his life to be able to discern good doctrine from bad doctrine, so he's blown about by every wind of doctrine. And uh, I, I know of no better example than situations like that because we see it all the time, you know. And, you know, I, I've told you before, you know, the word charismatic itself means gifted, and it's an organization that puts itself on some higher spiritual plane. Much like for us studying church history, the Gnostics back in the early church period. And it's one of those things where it's, it, it, they have no basis to it. And, and, and people get in it, don't understand it. It looks good. It's based on feeling, not based on Bible doctrine. So it goes anywhere. And this is the part of the problem. In a charismatic world, and I'm not bashing the charismatic church, or if you are a charismatic here this morning, you know what? I'm not, I have nothing against you personally. I'm just stating the facts. I've been around for quite a while. I've dealt with them all of my life. I know what they believe, and I know how they operate. And because there's no hardline Bible doctrine in their life, you can have just about anything you want. On one hand over here, you got the 700 Club, which is not a bad deal. I mean, uh, he, he, he's, he's not real goofy. Uh, he, he gets on there, he prays for people. I mean, I watch him every once in a while, you know, and he, he's a decent guy. I believe he loves the Lord, but that's on this spectrum. Then you come over on the other end, and you got the same organization, and they handle rattlesnakes, copperheads, cobras, black mambas, and handle the snake deal, see? In other words, there's no balance between the two. You can go on one end or the other end and everything in between. When I lived in Ohio, I had a guy I worked with who was a charismatic. You know what he did? Every person I won to Christ, working at the Hoover Company that I worked to, a day later or two days later, I'd see that rascal pulling them off someplace, telling them they didn't have all that God wanted them to have. And it confused them. Bottom line is this, folks. When you got saved, you got everything that there is to have of God. You may not know how to use it, but you got it all. 
And they would confuse the people that I would try to work with. I mean, that's the name of the game. That's simply the name of the game. And you find it all the way down through there. I had a guy one time that come to the place where, where do you stop? And when you ever been to a situation like that, it's like, I want to top what the last guy said. I mean, we, uh, we, we had a place where they believe in healing. And I believe that God heals. I just don't believe he heals in the apostolic way that they, they say he does. But the bottom line is this, where do you stop that? I mean, I got a guy over here that says, well, I believe I can heal sick people. And then there's another guy down here that I knew that he opened up what he called the full gospel gas station. His claim was that if your car burned oil, he could lay hands on the hood or on the engine and it could fix the engine rings. Now, where do you go with that? But that's what I'm talking. If you don't have a final authority that sets limits where you go, where do you go? I read a t- story, a testimony, or heard it, I can't remember where I did, where a guy, guy said that he could, he could raise dead people. And he could heal people that were near death. And then somebody else said, told a story, heard this testimony uh, verbatim, where the lady got up and she said, you know what, my cat got run over by a car and my daughter was crying and I prayed to God and went over and I laid hands on the cat and came back to life. Where do you go with it? Where do you stop with it? Your pet turtle? <laughs> if there's not a fundamental, foundational guideline for what we do or what we don't do, then we can do whatever we want. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. But that produces weak Christians. Now, I've given you probably the greatest three little word concept that you could ever want. And most of you use it. I hear you telling it to people all the time. You know what it is. Faith, fact, and feeling. Now, if you don't get nothing else out of this sermon this morning, when I hope you do, get those three words. Faith, fact, and feeling. The Bible says that we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, faith is what everybody claims to have. Charismatics claim to have faith. Jehovah Witnesses claim to have faith. Uh, Church of Christ claim to have faith. Everybody in the world has faith. Barack Obama has faith. Everybody has a faith. Reverend Wright has a faith. Billy Graham has a faith. T.T. Uh, T. Osborne had a faith. Catherine Kuhlman had a faith. Everybody's got a faith. But that's not the issue. Is your faith built on the facts? See? Faith, fact, feeling. In other words, I have faith. But my faith is based on the facts of that book. And when my faith is based on the fact of that book, you know what it does? It produces the right feeling. It tells me what is real and what isn't real. Because you can say what you want to say. We all have, our worst problem is our emotions. All of us, maybe not as much as others, but we all struggle with that. When to cry, when not to cry. When to care, when not to care. When to help somebody else, when not to help somebody else. What, What Your emotions is the thing that drives everything that you do. And of course, when it's not based on fact. In other words, your facts should should get, could dictate what you feel. And that little concept of faith, fact, and feeling is one of the greatest little pieces of theological doctrine you'll ever get your hands on. So the first type of weak Christian will be people, anybody, who claim things about God but know really nothing about his word. And they know their faith is not built on Bible doctrine, facts. So they have faith and feeling, but they have no facts. Some people have facts and faith, but they have no feeling. 
The true balance shout of God, what you ought to be, out of you had to have faith, but that faith is based on the facts of the Bible, and the facts of the Bible dictate your feelings. That's how it has to work. Now, the next type will be in three categories, and they're the types that we want to talk about today that they're making reference to in Romans chapter 14, but I had to give you the whole ball of wax. And these are the good ones. Well, these two of them are good ones. And other examples of weak Christians were people who just got saved. Or in many cases, people who have been saved for 20 years or more or or a long period of time, and they've just never been taught the Bible. And those are the two ones that you want to have. Most people that come into this church come in in one category or the other. Many of you come here unsaved, you get saved, and you begin to grow. Some of you have been in churches for many years of your life, but you've been, you've been uh, uh, you know what, it's been, it wasn't real to you, nobody cared about you, you got no Bible, you just went through the hoop, so to speak, and then you come to the point where you finally get a place where you can get all that you want from the Bible, and you immediately gravitate to it, and you begin the process of spiritual growth. Then you have the third element that you're going to have in any church, and we don't have a lot of it here, um, but it, 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 it happens wherever you go, and that is people who just are saved, but they refuse to grow, okay? or they quit, quit growing. And, uh, and this is what Paul's talking about in chapter 14. It's proper spiritual growth. Every church, every church, every pastor who pastors any church should have a detailed program for each member to grow Uh, to be what God wants them to be. Last week, we talked about it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, where it talks about growing into him, Christ. Every pastor, every church ought to have a plan, a detailed plan, that each member could grow to where God wants them to be and to fulfill those three areas that we talked about by learning who God is, who you are, and then how you look at others. You know what? I look at it this. Most churches are like going into Walmart or Kmart. And I have nothing against Walmart or Kmart. But when you go in there, or, or maybe, uh, you know, uh, maybe over to uh, Dillard's, or maybe over to uh, uh, any place where you just walk in and buy off-the-shelf stuff, and you say you want a suit. And so you go over to Dillard's someplace, or you go to Walmart or Kmart, because they sell suits now, too. And... Um, and you walk in there, you know, and you, 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 you buy a suit. And uh, you may be a 40 regular or a 42 regular, and uh, whoever made the suit, you know, uh, you're going to put it on, and you may have to mix or match a few things to get it, to get it off. In other words, the bottom line is this. It, you don't get a really good suit if you really want a really good suit. Now, personally, I don't really care about having a really nice suit. But if you want a really nice suit, it's going to cost you four or $500. If you just want an after-the-rack suit, you're going to probably get it for $100, $200. And if you're really lucky and the blue light's going around, you'll probably buy one and get the other one half price. Really a good day. But the bottom line is, I'm going to be honest with you, and I don't really care how I look in, mo- in cases like that. I have one really nice suit, and I wear that for funerals, but the guy can't see me anyhow, so what was the point in all of that? But anyway. <laughs> if you want a really good suit, that fits you well. Don't go to Walmart, Kmart. Don't go to Dillard's. Don't go. Go to a tailor shop where somebody will make a suit that will fit you hand-tailored to you. And I may say that in your spiritual training, get the same thing. Don't be satisfied with a spiritual training off the rack. 
Some churches turn out Christians like they turn out Twinkies down in town on a conveyor belt. Most Bible colleges, that's what they do. Most Bible colleges are not really a college to teach you the Bible. They're an assembly line. And the little guy and the little gal comes in on the end, and when they start to come down the conveyor belt, they put all the little pieces on them. By the time they get halfway through, somebody spray paints them with a three-piece suit, and they put a nice plastic smile on their face, and they work them down, and then they walk off the thing and go out to the world. No, 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 no. Let me just tell you something. The best spiritual training you can have, and you should demand, by the way, is to get built individually. You have needs that the person sitting next to you does not have. It'd be like if all, go, all of us guys here in the first two rows going in and buying a suit, and I just said, you know what? Give everybody a 38 regular. It ain't going to fit. Some of you it might. You have to have a suit or your clothes tailored to you. And you should have your Bible tailored to you. And every church should have a process or a program. Now, maybe you don't want it. Maybe you're in the third category here that you don't want to grow. But I'm telling you what, if you're in the first two and you're just a young Christian or somebody that's been around for a while and you have a desire to really grow, then I'm telling you, every church should have a detailed program for each member to grow through it. And it's like I said, you can get one off the rack or you can have one handmade from somebody who really knows how to fit you and uh, not the next guy. You know, it's the same thing in life. Most of you, some of you younger kids probably don't think about this. But, uh, you know, some of you older guys, uh, you have, you, don't, you have, don't you have financial planning in your life? I mean, don't you have a 401k or you have something that you hopefully that when you retire you can fall back on? Not that it'll be worth anything at that point. But, uh, I mean, uh, you, you, all, you all have it. When you go into your financial planner, do you say, and you see a guy walking out when, and you're taking his place, do you sit down with him and the guy says, well, what do you want to do? And you say, oh, I don't know. Just give me what you gave the other guy. You have your own specific financial needs and the plans you want to plan for. When you got your health care, I mean, you, ha- you had a choice. I mean, you had to look at it. You had maybe two or three different plans you could take, an EMO or PMO or PMS or whatever they are, you know. Uh, uh, but you had, to, you had to look them through and say, well, my doctor's on this one, my doctor's on that one. You just didn't simply walk in and say, oh, I don't really care. Give me what the, what's the majority doing? Well, I mean... That all changed. You're going to get it now. <laughs> You're going to get Obamacare. <laughs> but come on. You buy a car. You got five kids. You walk in and say, give me, a, give, me a, give me a Honda sedan. We buy everything in our life based on what our needs are. Why would you settle for the most important, precious thing in your world that's going to determine your judgment seat of Christ? By just saying, give me one off the rack. You ought to demand, you ought to demand that you get hand-tailored to what your needs are, your spiritual relationship with God. It's your right. It's your right. And it's the job of every church and every pastor. Get a personal plan for you. Sit down. Talk it through. Get a plan. You know what? I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's exactly what you need to do. This church will be only as strong as the maturity level spiritually that people rise to. And very frankly, that all that depends on the leadership of the church because I'm a firm believer that everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything. From the Bible basics class to the seven things that changed about the day you got saved <clears throat> to build you up in the faith. You know what? Honestly, 
And I've told you this before. Uh, God has called me to do one thing, and it's the only thing I really do well, and that is building people. But I got to tell you the truth that it's taken me probably 20-some years to put together a biblical process for building people and teaching people the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody before that period of time got the short end of the stick. But the bottom line is that everything in life is a process, including my own spiritual growth and seeing how to do things. And I built it on, I built it on Paul's example, uh, going through that thing in my own life. I compared what, who did what with me. I compared what I saw, what God was showing me, my own personality, my abilities, my strengths, my weaknesses, how God gave me the vision for what to do. And I personally think that God, you know, the only reason God ever called me to pastor is because that is the only way I can build people because that's what a pastor is supposed to do. Uh, I'm not a very good, uh, when I'm not a very good uh, organizational person when it comes to some things, so I have people do it. Um, I let everybody run everything else in this church from the finances right up to the, to the, to the who gets the insurance, where it goes, who pays for this, uh, what kind of color the doors are painted. That had nothing to do with that. My focus is to get all that out with people who do it better than me so I can do the one thing that I do better than anything else in this world. That's teach people the Bible. Let me tell you something. I can't fix your car. You don't want me to paint your house. You don't want me to plant your garden. You don't want me to wire your house for electricity. I'll tell you what, you'll get shocked when you turn the water on, I guarantee you. I mean, you'll go in and flush the toilet and all the lights will come on, I promise you. I mean, it's a day. You don't want me to build you a spare bedroom. You do not. You do not. You do not want me to build you a spare bedroom. That isn't me. But if you want to know the Bible and learn the Bible and get everything that God wants for you to have in an infallible system that cannot fail, I got the plan for you. Took me 20-some years to put it together, but it works. It works. I can build you into the man or the woman or the wife or the husband or the father or the mother or the Christian that you need to be. But it has to be one-on-one. Okay? I can't mass produce you. Would never try. I, I can, you can come on Sunday morning. You can come on Thursday night and I can get a lot of things done with you and give you a lot of things. But until, you know what? If you just look around you, the greatest, strongest people in this church who carry the load of this church or the people that came in and got involved one-on-one and got what they needed and got their suit tailored to them. I don't know what to tell you. You may not like that, but it's true. It's true. It's true. Years ago, I started coming through this thing, and I looked at the simple little plan that that Paul had, and I, I just worked it and followed it through all the way through. And I got looking over there in the boys and the books that Paul wrote, uh, the young men that he ministered to and trained. That would be First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And the first thing I saw that Paul had to start with that he makes a reference to is over there in Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, where he says to Timothy, you've got to have a sound mind. Now, to me, that was the Bible. If I don't have an absolute truth to put you into that you can judge everything by, that doesn't change on a daily basis or a weekly basis or a yearly basis, that it's the same standard today that it was 1,900 years ago, then we're wasting our time. That's why the Bible says over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, he asked the question. He says, uh, he says who, has, uh, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? That's a good question. If God, God has instructions from you, but the only way you can get the instruction that God has for you is when he goes on to that verse and he says, uh, who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But then he goes on and say, but we have the mind of Christ. 
He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, the first thing I have to start with and you have to accept is a sound mind. Not yours. Yours isn't sound. Not mine. Mine isn't sound. We got to get a mind that is absolutely 100% correct every time, every place, everywhere, and make that the absolute standard for everything that we're going to do. You know what? Once you get a sound mind, you know the next thing I would build? Then I can, once you get a sound mind, we have something to work with, then we can build sound doctrine. That'll be 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, and Titus chapter 1, verse 9, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Building Bible doctrine in your life is the key to building Christian character, leadership. The Bible says over there in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, the day you got saved, you laid a foundation in your life. That foundation is your salvation. The day you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior. Then he tells you that let every man take heed how he build thereupon. And the Bible says that we need to build as a master builder. You know what we build on that foundation? That foundation is the foundation of your temple. Remember the temple in the Old Testament? Well, you don't have a literal one. You've got a spiritual one, but you build it the same way. Every building block, every building block that you put on that foundation is a Bible doctrine. And you ever notice how you build a wall? We don't have any brick wall down here that you can see. But the next time you see a brick wall, uh, you want to know how it is? They put one course down through here, and then they put the course, uh, don't line them up over the joints. They, they, they put them where, where they span the joints because they, they, that's where you tie the wall in. That's where it gets its strength. That's where it holds itself together. In other words, all the blocks, building blocks, have to tie in together. If you just put the building blocks in a course with the seams here, and then you put more blocks on top with the seams matching up, the wall will fall over. You have to tie the wall seams in together on the blocks. And that's exactly what you've got to do with Bible doctrine. Every block being a doctrine. You want to become strong? Get a sound mind and then get some sound doctrine. Build on that foundation. Build that wall. Build that thing up. Be a wise master builder. And sound doctrine then leads to the next thing, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. And I see this happen in your life as sound words. Ever get my book back there, How to Study the Bible? There's a whole section. That whole book is built around key words in the Bible. Key words in the Bible. That day, the day, those days, the evil days, like and as. And I'll tell you what, Thursday night and Sunday morning in a Bible basics and church history and institute class and one-on-one of all designed to give you one thing. That is the sound words in the Bible that give you the understanding of how that book works. So we start with a sound mind. That's my process. I get a sound mind in your life, then I'll beat you, teach you sound doctrine. Yes, that was right. Beat you into sound doctrine. I was right the first time. Then you get sound doctrine. And then you get sound words. And then you get to the place where you know what the sound words turn into. They turn into uh, Titus chapter 2 verse 8, sound speech. That's where we come in, down to City Union Mission. You're teaching discipleship. You're working as a prayer group leader. You're taking what you learn now, and the sound mind has worked into sound doctrine, has worked into sound words, and now you're taking what you've got inwardly, and it's producing a sound speech. You're learning how to put messages together. You stand up there, and you, you, you take those boys down there at the mission, and you lay it out. Some of you younger ones get up and you give your testimony. That's the beginning. That's the beginning. That's the beginning of putting it all together. And you come to the point where you're, that's your ability to communicate truth. You've got to work through this process. And as you, it's a natural process. It isn't Bob prodding you along. It's just me following the greatest, simple, basic little plan that God showed me through the process of dealing with people over a period of 20 years that is absolutely infallible. 
getting you a sound mind, getting you sound doctrine, which produces sound words, which in time produces sound speech. And you know what those things finally produce? And this is where we want to go, isn't it? Titus chapter 1, verse 13. Titus chapter 2, verse 2. The sound, do- sound mind, then you get sound doctrine, then I teach you sound words, then I develop you into sound speech, and in time it produces a sound faith. That's the process. It's just that simple. Now when you get a sound faith, you're strong, you're mature. You not only know what you believe, but you know why you believe it. You basically can sit down with any group of people. You can get in any scenario at work or any scenario in your neighborhood or your friends or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and now you have the ability to communicate truth to them, and you will not be shaken. You can meet all the charismatics in the world. You can meet all the Church of Christ in the world. You can go out all the Jehovah with. You can meet every scenario and circumstance in life now, and your faith will not be shaken because a biblical New Testament process based on the book of Romans started with a sound mind, working in a sound doctrine, turned into sound words, turned into sound speech, and now produces a sound faith. And the problem we've got in Romans chapter 14 is we have somebody who is weak in the faith. Once you get to the sound faith, you have the right perspective, you have the right purpose, you have the right passion. And you've got everything you need to have. And that's the way it has to work. This is what our prayer groups are designed to do. This is why I'm so excited to see some of you new people step out and take it. This is why I'm so excited to see uh, people get involved and you begin to take those things and develop each other and help each other. It, it, it's just another dimension of what we're trying to do. Uh, from the very one, I, I, I've talked about my home's open an hour a week. Anybody wants to come over to help you get a plan and monitor the plan. Our job as a church is to always keep the young ones moving, and the younger ones will keep the older ones moving. Young Christians, if they do not grow properly, will get into issues. They'll become self-righteous. They'll become prideful. They'll become envy. They'll become strife. And knowing the Bible has to be balanced with uh, the ability to use the Bible. Every child of God. Now, here comes your second thing. I talked about, I gave you the first three. Now, here's your second thing you need to get down and understand this. Every child of God has three basic needs that need to be met. Everybody in this room. And it's the same way with your marriage. And I'll use this when I deal with marital couples, but it's also true of individual. Every marriage in this room. If you're married, your wife has three basic needs, and you have three basic needs. And if you don't understand not only what those three basic needs are, but how to meet them from the Bible standpoint, you're out for you're in. This is why marriages fail. This is also why Christians fail. They do not understand that fundamentally there's some basic needs that need to be met. And if you do not meet those needs, everything else is academic. It means nothing. You will not make it. And this is why the divorce rate in marriage is astronomical today. This is why the problems in churches are astronomical today. Because people don't understand the three basic needs that need to be met and balanced in the process of growth. The first one is you have physical needs. The second one is you have spiritual needs. And the third one is you have emotional needs. Now, we talked about faith, fact, and feeling a little while ago. Here you go. You have physical need. That's faith. You walk by faith, not by sight. You have spiritual need. That'll be the facts. You have emotional need. Ah, that'll be your feelings. See how it works? And it's the same with the husband and wife. You see, guys, let me tell you a little secret in life. We get our satisfaction and the worth of what we do because of what we do. If you go out and bag a 28-point buck, you feel good about yourselves. 
if you get a raise at work uh, or a pat on the back at work or somebody comes in after you worked on a project, they say, oh, boy, you did a great job. You feel good about it. And you want to, we want to, we want, that's why you have such competition with, with guys in sports. You hit a home run, uh, I mean, you feel good about yourself. I mean, you may not, some guys will walk around and, and, and gloat about it. Other guys will just take it inside and they'll say, wow, you know what, I just, I'm happy with myself. Because you, you, your, your self-worth, your goal, your, what you do in life is dependent on what you do, success-wise. And of course, you and me, because of the fact that we're such idiot sticks, we look at our wife and we think that she gets the same kind of deal. She gets her self-worth because of the fact that she's, uh, you know, she has a job she works all day long, you know, and she got a raise, or somebody patted her on the back, or, or you know, uh, she got the kids she got to look for. I mean, uh, that's what really makes her happy. No, 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 no. This is the difference. A woman, a man gets his satisfaction because he, of what he does. A woman gets her satisfaction from the security that she gets from her husband. Two different needs. I've told you this before. I was at a Raytown football game one time uh, years ago. I used to go up and watch the kids because they live right behind there. And I, in that typical example, I'm sitting down here and there's a mom and dad who's sitting in front of me. And I know that the kid that's playing the game is their kid because they both got his jersey on with his number and his name on the back, you know, and signs and flare guns and everything else. So, <laughs> kid was playing quarterback. And um, it was a thing where, and he was a good kid, and he was a good quarterback, and the ball got snapped to him, and, you know, and, and whatever happened, he was supposed to, and the play broke up, so he's going to run the ball. You know, gutsy move, I love it. He's going to run the ball, so he comes around left to center, and boy, he tucks that ball under his arm, and he puts his head down, and he starts blowing through that thing, and about nine guys just cream him. And I'm sitting right behind his mom and dad. Mom brought up and said, oh, they're going to kill my boy, and his dad jumped up and said, run away, son, go get him again. See, two different viewpoints. And that's just the way it is. Now, you as an individual Christian, let me tell you something. You have physical needs. You have spiritual needs. And you have emotional needs. My job, our job as mature Christians is to help young Christians get those three areas fulfilled. This is what he's telling us in chapter 14. Older Christians should understand some things and not become a stumbling block. And the Bible, older Christians are always helping the younger Christians, all the way through the New Testament, and even in back in the Old Testament. And of course, he says in verse 1, he that is weak in the faith, receive him, but not to doubtful disputation. Receive him, but not to cause problems. To you older Christians, there's a couple of things you need to understand as we go into this chapter in helping young Christians who have not maybe the spiritual wisdom that you and I may have. And these are typical problems that they don't want to be turned into stumbling blocks. It's a learning process. And I always tell people, you know, as I teach them about the Bible and how to put it all together, I talk about, you know, five or six things that you need to always remember. The first thing is simply this. When you teach somebody the Bible, you have to be very careful. Because one of the things you always got to keep in your mind, in the back of your mind, is you cannot teach somebody the Bible on a higher level than where they're at spiritually. Sometimes we think because we understand it, they understand it. That's not true. And what happens is it winds up becoming a stumbling block for them. I'll tell you something else. You can't teach the deep things of the Bible if you totally don't understand them yourself. A lot of Christians are like the Athenians over there in Acts chapter 17, verse 21, where Paul says all they wanted to do was hear and tell some new thing. Get a lot of God's people like that. 
I don't know how many times, you know, I got a phone call sometime during the week by somebody that was at Thursday night Bible study or Sunday morning, and I laid some out, some whopping thing out there, you know, that shook the world, you know, and everybody saw before, and the first thing they try to do is go out and try to teach it to somebody else at work, and they look like an idiot. And so they call me on the phone and say, what do I do? And I say, well, I get a big sign that says I'm an idiot and wear it around the rest of the day. I don't know what to tell you. You should never try to teach the Bible if you don't totally understand it yourself, see? But what happens is you have young Christians who don't understand even what you understand, and you try to explain it to them, and you make an absolute mess at it, it becomes a stumbling block, and you lose your witness to be able to talk with them because they look at you as an idiot. You've got to never, you got to always understand that you've got to be aware of the crowd that's around you. Third thing is know your limitations. Having the wisdom and understanding to apply the truth that you do know. And this takes discernment and discretion. And another thing that you always want to remember is never teach all the Bible that you know. I don't teach you all the Bible I know. I am very conscious. I could teach you some things Thursday night that would scare the fire out of half of you and, and send the rest of the out the door. I mean, you want to have some fun sometime. How about if I take you through the blood-sucking vampires from Jupiter? Would you like that one? So you have to have wisdom, discernment, discretion, always being aware of your crowd. You never teach all the Bible you know. You don't do it just because you want to show off of what you know. In other words, you're always guarded by information that you give because it's got to be relative to the young Christians that are there. And then the, 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 the fifth one, and this is probably ties us right back into 14 here, learn to choose your battles. Some things are worth fighting over and some things are not. I know Christianity is a warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, but there are some things that are worth fighting over and other things that are not. And one of the marks of a mature Christian is to know when to let it go and not force the issue and choose your battle. And that's probably the hardest thing for most Christians to do because that takes discernment and discretion and that takes spiritual wisdom. And the last one, and that's, that's, this is where we're at now, these last two. You need to learn the difference between a doctrinal issue and a conviction or a personal preference because there lies your decision to choose your battles. You're going to find as you work with people, and this is what chapter 14 is all about. Chapter 14 starts out with the issue of vegetarian versus a meat eater. You're going to find out that many people, they believe things in the Bible that are not really Bible-based, but rather on personal preferences or conviction because that's where they're at. And as a, with young Christians, you don't fight over those things. You'll be smart enough to let them grow out of it. I'll give you a couple examples. <clears throat> and I don't think you'll mind me using this. I think I've even said it before. <clears throat> you all know Marion. Marion's my best buddy in the whole while. We back there, Marion. I'm going to tell this story, Marion. It's okay about our beginnings. What in the mind about you cutting that guy up with that hatchet that time? It ain't that one. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> when I met Marion, <clears throat> I've known his wife for, for years. Lucy, right? I've known his wife for years. She's like my own daughter. I mean, her dad and me and mom are just like lifelong friends. Uh, <clears throat> her dad and I got arrested one time together years ago. <clears throat> we went out to Longview Lake, uh, not Longview Lake. It was, wasn't even that far. It was right out on Raytown Road there, uh, right past uh, 87th Street. And back then it was all undeveloped. So he's got an AR, I got an AR-15, he's got an M-14, <coughs> and we want to go out and shoot. Little did we know that it was in the, still in the, in the city limits. 
So we drove up in my Jeep up in the back there, everybody's big round telephone poles. We put target up. We're banging away, man. I mean, we're just banging away. And this conservation, somebody called the cops, and this conservation guy comes up. And he didn't even have a gun. And I said, I said, you know what? We better do what he says. And he says, why is that? And I said, because we got two guns, and he not no gun, and he's still not afraid to tell us to prop our guns. So he'd better know something that we don't know. <laughs> well, that's how far we go back together. No big deal. We shot the guy, buried him. They never, we shot the guy, buried him. They never found him to this day. Anyway. <clears throat> The moment I met Marion, <clears throat> I knew that God was going to give him to me, him and his wife. And we talked some things, and I never forget the first time that he and I met together. And uh, we, we, we talked through some things, and he was going to, I wanted him to come to church. In fact, from that first time, I don't think they've ever missed a church service, other than maybe we're on their honeymoon. And Marion told me this. He says, you know what? He says, well, he says, I'm willing to come alone. He says, but I want you to know. He says, I, don't, I, I says, I'd like to have a drink every once in a while. And he says, I, you know, I, says, I don't think anything wrong with a beer. Every once in a while. Now, at that particular point in time, see, I could have caused the problem. I could have, I could have pulled all Deuteronomy chapter 32. I could have went to 9,000 different places and laid the whole thing up. You know what? I just said, fine. That's what you want to do. No problem. And because I didn't make an issue out of it, because I understood that's where he was, even though I knew what the Bible said about it, it wasn't, I guarantee you, you couldn't get him to drink beer now or anything else now if you, if you tied him down and tied his hands behind his back. You know why? Because he grew through the process. I found this. It's a lot better when God, in some cases, it's a lot better when God tells you what's wrong with what you're doing than somebody else pointing it out. You notice, ever notice that? And you got to, but that takes wisdom. That takes discernment to know when to do that, see? I mean, it just does. And you're going to find that people have all kinds of goofy things. And you've got to put up with it. I had a lady one time, you know, we're really casual in our church. And I had a lady one time a couple of years ago, you know, nice lady, but, you know, one of those kinds. She comes up and she says, she says, you know what would really make me happy? And I said, no. She says, if you would wear a suit and tie on Sunday. She says, it just, in my mind, you just, you just can't, a pastor needs to look his best. And, and you need to wear a suit and tie. And I looked at her and I said, you know what? That's a great point. And I, may I say something back to you? She says, yes. I says, you'd look better if you lost 20 pounds. <laughs> oh, why would you get mad at that? I got to wear a suit, but she can, she, oh, come on. <laughs> now, I, I wasn't serious, but I was making my point. Do you think if I put a suit of tie on it, I'd be any holier than I am? Amen. <laughs> you get a lump of coal for Christmas, it doesn't matter if they put it in a big box with bows and all kinds of stuff on it, or they put it in a cardboard paper sack. It's still a lump of coal. Clothes don't make the man. Now, I think you ought to look nice when you come to church, but you know what? I don't care. I have people, a couple asked me a couple of weeks ago when I asked them if they'd come to church, and they said, well, yeah, we would. Do, are, are we, do we have to dress up? And I said, you look fine. Come the way you are. I mean, don't wear these clothes every day till you come here, but I mean, you know, you're fine. Got to be clear with people. But you find people with those kind of scenarios, you see. I mean, some churches, they have dress codes. You know, and I've always thought that was stupid. But that's where people are at. There you go to some churches that if the women wear slacks, you're, I mean, uh, you're, you're of the devil. 
If you ain't got a dress on, you know, it's, it's, you ain't spiritual because they, that's, a, that, that's not a Bible doctrine. I was in a place one time, where, and, and Barb was there, and, and, and a guy was preaching to 2,500 people. And he was so hot and, and rolling on this thing that he basically said that if you're a woman here today and you have slacks on, he said, you're a dirty-legged whore. I'd never say that in any way, shape, or form on anything. <laughs> that's stupid. Now, that same guy about four years later, his wife left him. I wonder why. <laughs> Crazy stuff, man. I've had pastors get up and say, and this is how stupid it is. I've had pastors get up and say, you know what? <clears throat> Bible says that a woman should not wear that with pertaining to a man. Because if you've got slacks on today and you're a woman, you're wearing a you're wearing girl wear clothes pertaining to a man. How so? That verse is in the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, every man back there wore a short skirt robe. So ladies, if you have a skirt on today, according to the Bible, you have on man's clothes. How stupid it is. Now I know I learned a long time ago, you can't you can't get a hold of people like that. If I put rules up here and I said everybody's got to wear a dress, you know what happened? Some of you wear a dress so short that, I mean, it, it, you know what? It, it, and so then I got to add to the sign. You got to have a dress, but it's got to be long. Then you know what happens? You wear one so thin the mosquito could fly through without breaking his wing. So then I got to add another rule. <coughs> it's got to be aggressive. <coughs> it's got to be long. <laughs> it's got to be thick. <coughs> I know what you do. You'd get one so tight, it looked like a skin diving suit, see? So here's my answer to the problem. I'll just teach you that when you dress in the morning to go to church, wherever you go, dress to please the Lord. And whatever you have on will be right. See how simple that is? But you've got to deal with people like that. And I've had people that's come to this church that I, the moment they walked in, they looked around and they saw the way the ladies were dressed and they're out of here. I don't know what to tell you. Back home in Ohio, we had a guy by the name of Paul Stump. Paul Stump was an idiot. <laughs> went to Bible college. In fact, he went to Dr. Ruckman's school when he's one of the rejects from down there. And, he, and Paul Stump was an idiot, absolute idiot. And Paul Stump, you know, and we believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. I mean, I'll tell you what, no question about it. But we've had people come to Thursday night Bible study with another Bible. Did you ever see me meet him at the door and tell him to leave? You ever see me walk up? Some of you may have a different Bible here this morning. Do you see me walking over and doing a, I got three, four guys back there that are the Bible patrol to make sure that the demonic Bibles and you bring them don't come in here? Absolutely not. Well, I, who, me, Bob Alexander, Bible Bob, the guy that believes the King James Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I've told people that that's what they understand right now, then keep on using it. It's okay. It's okay. But old Paul Stump, he'd go over there and he'd, he'd catch you at the door. And I watched him one time, and I, it was the goofiest thing I ever saw in my life. And, and he goes to show you. Paul walked over there, and he had a real gruff voice. He looked like this. He, he, walked, he saw a kid come into church one time, and he had another translation. <clears throat> and he says, uh, <clears throat> he, talk, uh, he says, hey, uh, whose Bible you got there? He looked up and said, my Bible. <laughs> he said, no, that's not what I mean. He said, where'd you get your Bible from, son? The kid said, my mom and dad gave it to me. <laughs> He couldn't even understand where the kid was coming from. I've always found out it's better if God shows some people some things and let them grow. You see, my job is not to tell you what to do. 
in a, I mean, in a doctrinal sense, there's no question to it. But in your own preference and personal thing that you've got to grow through, I'm, I'm, my, the best thing you can do is just teach them the Bible and let God show them exactly where they're at. Give them the grace, the patience. If they keep coming and grow through right, they'll grow through it. And as a pastor of a leader, you have to be able to discern what is a doctrinal issue and what is a personal preference. Now, you know, water baptism for salvation, tongues, lose your salvation, Calvinism, you know, all those things, that, that's another issue. You have to deal with those. But when it comes to situations where people struggle with issues that are non-doctrinal issues, that's what Paul says in Romans. He says, receive that person, but not to doubtful disputation. Don't make a doctrinal issue out of something that's not a doctrinal issue. If everybody in this church, the majority of you, understand the Bible and truth and are strong, then our job, when somebody comes in like that, and we don't have them come in very often, if at all. But you need to know, sooner or later, you're going to bump into somebody like this. You've got to learn to choose your battles, when to fight and when not to fight. And that's the key. Two great verses, and these are, everything in here is a biblical principle for ministry this morning, but two great verses for me that I've always used are found in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. And it simply says this, verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise, uh, excuse me, lest thou be like unto him. And then verse 5 says almost the same thing. It says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. And, of course, the, the difference between those verses is the discretion and the discernment that I'm talking about. Verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. And, of course, uh, in that particular situation, uh, you, when, you, when, somebody, when somebody comes in, and maybe on Thursday night Bible study or whatever the case, they have a question about the Bible and they're screwed up in something in the Bible. Uh, I mean, this way, for instance, somebody comes in and says, well, you know what, Bob? I says, I, I, I like the Bible and I read the Bible, but I just don't believe the Bible uh, is really the Word of God. I mean, I just have a tough time. And I get this a lot. I don't understand how, how, how God could, uh, could be a perfect Bible if man wrote it. And I understand that. I understand that. And, of course, and then, so you get two ways to question. One guy comes in and he's looking for a fight and he's making a statement that there's no way the Bible is going to be uh, the Word of God. And so, uh, in that particular case, you, know, you answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. You nail him. He comes in on a Thursday night or sometime in here, and he tries to disrupt the thing, and he already has made up his mind, and he's going to throw something out. Then, in that particular case, you answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. See? You don't let him get away with it. Now, you get the same, another guy comes in who has the same question, but he doesn't know any difference. He wants to know. And he's just going by where he's at. And he said, well, gee, Bob, I just don't understand how the Bible can be absolutely perfect and pure if man wrote it. Well, in that case, verse 4, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like unto him. In other words, understand, one guy's looking for a fight, the other guy's looking for an answer. Don't deal with them the same way. The young guy who wants to learn and wants to know, that's where he's at. You don't give him the Paul Stump treatment. You take him where he's at. You receive him, and then you work him, help him, give him the grace. Sit down and talk with him. Work through whatever you got to do. The other guy doesn't want an answer. See, that's the difference between the two times of weak Christians. Now, we've all been there. We all come through there. You know, when it's a thing where, uh, you know, you have all of those issues that you got to deal with. So our job, chapter 14, is to understand not everybody has had the light that you and I have had. 
If you've been around here for three or four years, you've got a tremendous amount of truth. Now, I don't know what you did with it, but if you're paying attention and you're doing what you're supposed to do, you come up the levels pretty quickly and you get a handle on the Bible where you learn how to use it. Our job is to understand there's people that come in, people that you're going to work with who do not have the light that you and I have. We can't cut them off and just whack them. You've got to understand that they're coming in and we receive them, but not to doubtful disputations. Don't cause a fight with them over something that isn't doctrinal. Give them the grace. Understand where they're at. Be able to allow them to grow, to have the same opportunity that everybody in this room had. And that's the key. You receive them, 14.1. You take him in, but not the doubtful disputations. You don't give him problems over where he's at. It'll be a stumbling block for him. When we get into this chapter next week, we'll start to look at this great chapter, and we're going to learn some great things that we need to operate by. I don't care if you're in level one, level two, or level three. You get to the point where you learn how to use what you know. And when God brings people in that maybe you bring them in or they come in here and they have different ideas about things. And I'm even going to the point with doctrinal differences because I read the person of whether they're asking or they're a hard mainliner that I've got to deal with. But you learn to realize that people need grace. Just because we have the truth doesn't mean that everybody understands it like we do. Now We have to have the tolerance. We have to have the patience. We need to have the compassion. The same things that was given to us when we first got saved. And of course, that's exactly what we need to do. Now, we're going to pray here in a moment. We'll be dismissed. Ladies, don't forget next, next uh, Saturday morning, 930. I got a special surprise for you. It's going to be a great time when we get our ladies groups all fired back up again. Guys, make sure you get all your groups covered and take care of like we talked about yesterday. And don't forget the candy Thursday night and next Saturday morning and then stick around to plan to help us stack it all together and get it ready for the kids next week at 9 o'clock. Let's have a word of prayer, and I'll see you throughout the week and all the different things that we're involved in. But God bless you. I love you. Thank you for being here, and I hope there's been a bit of blessing to you. Father, we